CITR 101.9 FM Ink Studs. This is the radio show where we talk about comics. That was a little bit of uh, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen. Uh, wonderful stuff. Uh, great German avant-garde composer who was um, a uh, teacher to Holger Schuke, um from Cannes. A little knowledge of uh, why Stockhausen is important, not only for his own music, but uh, Holger Zuke went on to uh, kind of start a whole new music movement in Germany. And our guest today is uh, kind of like that for the comics world. He was a bit of a teacher for a bunch of uh, excellent comic artists and also uh, inspired a lot of other artists. And I'm very excited to have him on. It's uh, Baron Story. Do I have you there, Baron? Yes, I'm here. Excellent. So thank you for joining us today. I appreciate the opportunity. I'm flattered, actually. <laughs> uh, we're, uh, as I said before, Don and I are both big fans of your work, and I'm excited. I uh, have my hands, my filthy little hands, on a copy of Life After Black, your new book, flown in from Belgium. <laughs> um, I'm glad you've got it. Have you had a chance to look at it? Oh, yeah. I've had it for, uh, I guess, about a month now, I think. 
or I don't couple know how weeks. Long. A couple weeks. Yeah. I uh, ordered it as soon as I knew I was able to, and uh, Don and I both got a copy, and we both love it. It's gorgeous. Oh, thank you very much. I'm really glad you enjoy it. It's um, it's a verbatim print of one of my journals, and uh, um, I know we're uh, scheduled to talk about comics. So no, well, no, we're going to talk about your work. Yeah, about in, my work. Yeah, yeah, in general, just. All right. We're a comic show, but I mean, like, I've done an interview with Ralph Steadman, who isn't a comic artist, but I mean, he's had a lot of influence on the comic scene. Um, and your work has had a tremendous influence as well, as you've been a teacher to a lot of artists. Um, should I na- name drop the people? Uh, Actually, that's one of the first things I was going to ask is, um, is what, what, I, I keep hearing, like, I hear so many people say that that you're an influence to them, but I, I I've never been really clear on who were people that you actually that that uh, actually studied under you as a teacher. Um, I had the good fortune of having uh, a, a group of artists in my illustration classes at Pratt uh, in New York years ago, who were inclined towards uh, comics and. Um, Unlike most of the illustration teachers, I was green-lighting that. I said, go for it. And uh, these guys went out and made names for themselves in the field. And this is, it was incredible to me, but I had um, Kent Williams and George Pratt and uh, John Van Fleet and Peter Cooper and Seth Tabachman. Uh, oh, I didn't know uh, Cooper Tabachman? Yeah. Did I pronounce it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Seth and Peter are responsible for the publication World War Three. Yeah, that's a it's a great it's one of the best I think political um, cartoon magazines available. It was um, I think it was Peter. Um, I was already teaching uh, illustration values to uh, a very inspired young artists who would go on to start doing painted comics but it was peter who actually asked me to do a comic my first ever in a magazine produced there at pratt called ubiquitous oh really yeah i had i had never done a comic before well that's not exactly true but i'd never had one printed before and i actually found it fascinating to hear that you were is it true that you were you were uh that you, you were never a fan of comic books in general the fact is, I was when I was very young. I was, um, um, I'm, I'm cautioned not to be too digressive, but here's a little quick anecdote. My uncle worked at a paper factory, and one day he brought over a pile of about 300 comic books that were about to be shredded. He asked me if I wanted them, and, you know, what am I going to say, no? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I had I had looked at comic books from time to time, but I hadn't gotten deeply into it at all. And here was a pile of stuff that was like a treasure trove. And in it, I discovered EC Comics, entertaining comics, and I liked them a lot. <laughs> they were great. <laughs> it, were, there, were there any um, artists of, from EC that really stood out to you? I was a big Wally Wood fan from the get-go. Oh, yeah. Uh, Wood did a story, I think it was in Weird Fantasy Comics, called My World, an autobiographical piece. 
in which he talked about being a comic artist. And I love this story. And I didn't realize it, but, you know, I was, I was going there. <laughs> I wanted to be a comic artist. And, you know, it was always in the back of my mind. And I gravitated to uh, drawing-oriented illustration. Well, the EC was the basically. I, th- I think it's it still holds up as being like like probably the company that had the strongest illustrators working with them in the uh, in the fifties. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It was Rosetta and Chuck Davis, mm-hmm. Bernie Kriegstein. Bernie Kriegstein. Yeah. yeah, you know, and you know, the the list goes on and on. Al Williamson. Mm-hmm. And there was a bunch of incredible artists, and uh, I I love the art. But um, I also thought the stories were really intelligent and mm-hmm. uh, informative. And is there, is there anything, because like the, the comic um, work that you do, it, it, it almost has, uh, on the surface, it almost has nothing in common with, with, you know, like say like old EC comics. And I was wondering if there's, if there's anything you, you took from uh, comics when you were a kid that you kind of use in, in your work in some way. Um, and I think that's an interesting observation, and I suppose it's it's very true. But to my way of thinking, there is something in common with EC Comics. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, without being too pretentious about it, I would say that uh, I found some honesty in EC Comics. Mm. And uh, that was a paradigm that I liked. Mm. I remember... Um, listening to Harvey Kurtzman talk about the, the struggle he had with a comic called Frontline Combat. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were at war, or at least it was a police action that we'd like to think of as a war in Korea at, mm-hmm. the, at the time. Yeah, And it was pretty hard to get the honest scoop about that. And man, I got what I took to be very credible and honest uh, information about Korea right there in the pages of Frontline Combat and I got it with great drawings yeah. I like that a lot yeah. <laughs> yeah actually it is true because it wasn't there, I mean at the time there wasn't even any like not a lot of movies were made about Korea it didn't it like there, there's no television shows based about the Korean War you know or anything like that that's true I never thought of that um it's interesting that you compare it to movies because I like movies too. Mm-hmm. And from my particular uh, perspective, which might be generational, mm-hmm. uh, the movies were were more honest too. Uh, there was uh, there were you know uh, social realist films that were um, making uh, waves, like uh, the Ilya Kazan. Uh, films and things like that oh, on yeah. the waterfront. Mm-hmm, that's the one that was actually just coming to my mind, too. Yeah. And, you know, I thought this was great stuff. And uh, I'd have to say that uh, uh, there are still some fantastic films around, but in the, in the interface between art and entertainment, um, the 50s was kind of a golden age because we saw some we saw some absolutely exemplary work uh, done in the arts that was nevertheless in the popular domain. And uh, mm-hmm. that influenced me as well. Also, I like uh, 
you know, high contrast black and white imagery. Oh yeah. And that certainly was an easy trademark. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, I was uh, okay. About okay, well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journals? Actually, that's that, that's uh, since since your new book is is I guess it's journal number forty five, right? Yeah, and it's uh, I guess it's a continuation um, for understanding of the Marat Saad journal, which you uh, had published was in ninety two. Or, yeah, I think that was the year, but I'm a little vague. Yeah. <laughs> tell you the truth, um, yeah, it was. Um, it was actually kind of a battle mm-hmm. to get that book published. Uh, I'm talking about the Maratza Journal. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been introduced by uh, my uh, former students and friends in comics to some important people, and uh, one of them showed uh, my work to Kevin Eastman, who at that time had made a lot of money with uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and wanted to set up a kind of a blue-sky publishing thing uh, where he would publish works that he liked and people that he liked, liked. And um, uh, Tundra was formed with that ambition, and uh, I got right in there uh, at the right time, I guess. And uh, Kevin agreed to publish one of my journals as a, as a Tundra uh, publication. But by the time it, it, and I got a great contract, I must say. I thought it was a great one. I got a wonderful advance and all the good stuff. Good. I didn't know it at the time, but that was all, all that I would see from that endeavor. Yeah. Uh, but um, things changed over the years, and they kept putting it on hold and putting it on hold. And after a while, after being told by a lot of people that... Uh, it might not be a seller, and uh, maybe maybe the world wasn't really ready for another look at the Marquis de Sade anyway. Um, there was a strong resistance, and uh, but I had the contract, and the contract said this and that, and I wanted it in print. So I fought for it, and, and, and Kevin uh, agreed and put it out. But it, it took about... Uh, two and a half years, or maybe more, to get it printed. Now, now I was wondering what, um, why you decided to, to for the first journal that you published, the Marasab journal. Why, why, um, why you specifically picked that one? Because it wasn't your first journal. It was, it was later on, and after you've been doing them for years, isn't it? That's absolutely true. Um, well, you know, it's an interesting thing about the journal process. <laughs> um, <laughs> Basically, I see it as, il- <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry, uh, as illustrating your life. Mm-hmm. And sometimes your life is interesting. And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and sometimes it isn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I did, my first few journals are kind of like home movies. Um, fun for me to look at and remember, mm-hmm. but not a lot going on narrative-wise. Um, but later on, um, I got into the habit of adapting um, things that I was working on in the theater to my journals. If I was doing a show um, and I liked the show, 
I would sort of uh, take the characters from the show and put them into my journals and tell a personal story at the same time that I was telling some other kind of story. And that worked pretty well, I thought. And uh, uh, so um, uh, I was made bold by that to pick that one because I thought it had a little bit of content that wasn't just my personal stuff. Oh. Yeah, it, it's, it's funny because um, I, th- I think I've read that you, you said that, uh, that you can kind of look back through your journals and sort of relive where you were at the time. Yeah, and 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 it remind. I don't know if you've uh, heard how William Burroughs used to do that. He, uh, for for his, tra- he had like travel journals that he would have, and he would divide the page. And it, your your journals totally remind me of this, where he would divide the page into three columns. And the first column, he would have uh, a list of what he saw on his trip and what he did. And then the second column would be what he was thinking at the time and associations he had with the things he saw. And then the third column was actually quotes from whatever he was reading at the time. And I notice you incorporate a lot of uh, sort of uh, like whatever you're interested in the time seems to go directly into your work. I didn't know that about Burroughs' process. Uh, yeah, me but neither. That, that fits perfectly with mine. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I found that really interesting. I'm a huge Burroughs fanatic, and I've never even heard that. Yeah, it's in the Paris Review interview. You got to ah. <laughs> check it out. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. Like for for the Life After Black uh, journal, that was the first one that you did in color. Is that is that right? Um, it's the first one that is all color. All color. Okay. I had uh, you know always done color pages when I had the time, but um, I sort of made the decision to do that one. With every page with color on it. No, no. Like so, would just just to see how you work a bit. Um, so, so you basically like carry a journal around with you and just draw every day. That's right. Okay, that's yeah. I, I don't think I think that's good advice to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I was going to ask about like like the types of uh, like how, how you carry medium around with you because it seems that you use a lot of like paints and inks and things like that and. Do you, do you use? Are there certain things that you carry with you to to do like color work when you're on the road or whatever? Yeah, I um, I have um, all kinds of materials and I love them all. Hmm. And in my studio, there are too many things to pick from. But uh, when I'm traveling, I cut it down to um, my usual pocket full of pens and pencils, hmm. and then I carry. Um, a really interesting little Winsor Newton watercolor set that uh, uh, my wife Petra found on um, Martha Stewart's website. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, awesome! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. The um, idea of having Martha Stewart in the loop of my art was <laughs> pretty amazing to me. Yeah, I wouldn't have saw that coming. That's yeah, a, that's a real step. <laughs> But it's a cool little set, and I take it everywhere I go. And then I use whatever I find, wherever it is. Um, you know, after a while, you get to thinking you can draw with just about anything. Yeah. Uh, also, that, uh, the journals, are, are they um, basically reproductions of, the, of the, the original size of the journals as well? It's exact. It's exact. Okay. Wow. Yeah, because I, I noticed that you had, um, like, through the book, it'll have, like, book one and book two. Uh, sort of chapters, and I was wondering if that might have been like a combination of smaller sketchbooks, or if it was just a change in theme. Or, or um. no, the, um, the the sectioning of my journals has become a habit. Mm-hmm. I, I usually run around ten pages or so, and then I'm ready for a new start. And um, so 
so I divide them up, and those are not structural divisions. They're not prearranged. They're oh. kind of like newspapers, you know. Oh, this, okay. This week's paper has this. <laughs> oh, okay. And next week paper, next week's paper might have something else. Yeah, I, I, and and I've I've also read that you do you seem to use use your journals as almost like a purging or like a kind of cathartic. Yeah, yeah, like a cathartic way. Yeah, it's 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 more than that because um I'm not aware of uh of what's real until I go to my journal. Um at this point it's become such a um, part of my thought process and my seeing and experiencing of life that uh it's you know it's completely integrated. I carry the thing with me all the time. Sometimes I go someplace, you know, and spend hours and hours and hours doing this or that and come back, and I've never even touched my journal. But it's with me. <laughs> I remember an advisement to a photographer, where, uh, which was, you know, always have your camera around your neck. And um, it's kind of like that. It's always with me. As for therapy... And uh, that sort of thing, yeah, really, that's that's a big part of it. But m- mainly, it's a means for me to try to figure out, you know, what's going on with me and uh, what's going on with the world around me. Now, looking at um, your new one, the Life After Black, is it kind of like the title? Is it looking at like a transition in your life from the Marat side, which was I haven't read it, but from what I gather and. The theme of it, like I sat down and watched the Marat Sad, the Peter Brooks movie or the play yeah. on movie. Mm-hmm. Um, is it kind of like a different phase in your life? Uh, yeah, the, uh, the fact is the, the thing centers around a relationship. It's two different facets of a relationship that I had. And in one, I've used a fictionalized version of the Marat Sad scenario. And uh, the significant person in my relationship becomes Charlotte Corday. And uh, I start identifying with Mara. And the second one, the, the, the table is turned, and uh, the relationship shifts. I'm older. I'm now King Lear. And the other person is now Cordelia. And uh, it's interesting... The, the two are the opposite in the sense in one the woman kills the guy and the other the woman dies you know and that wipes out the guy as well um, these kind of uh, uh, things are, are not so much planned out or even consciously thought of as they just seem to occur sort of happy accidents well, I like the Picasso quote, you know, I don't seek, I find. Hmm. And I always find stuff. I found a an LP record in the little uh, memorabilia store down the street from me of the Marat Saad soundtrack. Hmm. And that was just coincidental. But from that experience, I not only um, uh, did the Marat Saad journals, but I did a whole comic a serialized comic strip uh, based on a character created from a play that I produced. I mean, I, that I was involved in. Um, I had a character called Assassinata, 
which was just another manifestation of the character that's in these other books. Hmm. And it all came from the accident of stumbling on to that record. Yeah, I, I, I find that, that your work really, it really seems to lend itself to a certain um, type of narrative. Uh, like I was talking to somebody earlier about how, like a lot of comics, uh, like the, to have any sort of inner dialogue or, or somebody, like a monologue even, or uh, usually the, they resort to like little boxes of text around the talking page. Heads. Yeah, talking heads and boxes of text. And I think yours is like one of the, the best types of comics I've seen for being t- able to incorporate any sort of inner dialogue like into the into the actual design of the page and and it works so well I think it's just it did like do you see your work um lending itself a more easily to that type of narrative than as than opposed to a superman story or something <laughs> um your uh, burrows uh, uh comparison mm-hmm. was perfect um I'm I'm convinced that uh, basic Superman narrative kind of stuff is too simplistic uh, to really tell something about life. Uh, life seems multi-layered to me. Hmm. My illustrations are multi-layered. Um, the meanings that come out of the drawings are multi-layered. For some, that's just confusion and narcissism. Um, but as far as I'm concerned... I can't imagine that everybody isn't the same. Everybody experiences ambiguities and contradictions and paradoxes in their take on life. And why not include that in uh, the presentation of a story or at least the sharing of life experience? I think I'm going to pull out a little quote here that I think is sounding a little apt. Is uh, I think it was Brian Geisen who said that, uh, was it uh, books were so many years behind uh, artwork like painting and stuff like that and does that seem like with comics where they're still behind as far as like stretching out into utilizing the media and really playing with it as an art form yeah I uh, I like that quote I, I'm, I'm crit- critical of comics I've kind of been forced into being um, somebody who has to take a position <laughs> and it's um it's awkward because I'm not a big reader of comics. Um, I like to look at them. <laughs> I suppose I'm still the kid who likes to look at the pictures. But it is the thing that he's referring to, the, the nonlinear communication of painting mm-hmm. that I really miss in a lot of um, storyline-driven uh, comics. It also reminds me of, I remember... Um I read a uh, criticism, or not a criticism, uh, something written about uh, Picasso and George Brock at the, like when they started Cubism, and it said that uh, that Brock was 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 able to go deeper into Cubism uh, quicker than Picasso because Picasso was was mostly doing portraits, and he had a hard time breaking up a human form. He wanted to still keep it human, but Brock was doing um, still lifes and houses and things, so he had no problem distorting it easier. And I think I was wondering if that might be uh, the same with like an inner dialogue where it's kind of it, people... People aren't having the... aren't able... aren't to as just, comfortable just to rip it apart. Yeah, to kind of piece it, like or to take it apart and put it back together in a way that may not be linear or something. I don't know. Um... Wow, that's an interesting thing. I'd never heard that story about Picasso and Brock. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I, I suppose it's, it, 
you would uh, I would have to think about it a little bit perhaps but uh, there's, there's some truth to the fact that uh, there are different thresholds you know you more easily uh, slice and dice certain things mm-hmm. yeah. and others you want to state very emphatically I did a magazine once about AIDS mm-hmm. and um, uh, I published a little magazine with my students called Watch Magazine and we did thematic issues we did one about AIDS and Coming right here from San Francisco, this is a major issue. This is back in the 80s. And um, all of a sudden I found you just couldn't be glib. You couldn't couldn't make symbolic stuff. The reality of AIDS was too, too crushing. So it ended up more or less, at least my part of the magazine, ended up just doing straight drawings of... Um, people who were showing the effects of AIDS. And uh, like those great um, uh, De Chirico, I mean, not De Chirico, the um, uh, Jericho uh, drawings of the the people who were insane, Mm -hmm. uh, you get the feeling that a little bit of telling stuff is coming through a straight portrayal. And on the other hand, when something is, you know, when you have a sarcastic attitude and it doesn't seem to matter anyway and you're more or less expressing um, that attitude, you're free to just be outrageously uh, uh, deconstructive with something. Yeah, that's, I, yeah if I, I, I totally agree with what you just said. I was, I was thinking that it reminded me of, like, the September 11th um, after the September 11th stuff that when then when people were coming up with sort of comic book tributes, it was either something like where they don't even really talk about it and they talk about something personal or else it was kind of trite, you know, it would be like somebody looking at, uh, looking up at a firefighter or something, you know, and it's, it's that, I think it's probably that same type of balance you were talking about with like the, you know, dealing with a subject like AIDS where it's either kind of, really trite or or heavy and you have to run that real balance between it the comparison is a very good one and i actually um i i like that you brought that up because um the the fact is it gives me a chance to mention and i always want to mention my teacher um my teacher was uh, robert weaver at sva in new york and this man made all the difference to me about illustration and uh, visual communication in general. And um, when it occurred, um, I was like so many others. I was stunned to complete immobility. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't do a damn thing. It seemed worthless to put marks on a page. Mm-hmm. And I knew a lot of artists who felt the same way. But I, I started thinking, you know, if I had been in Weaver's class, what would have happened? He would have kicked our butts to get down there and draw what we saw. And I actually saw images that were profound. Uh, the people pasting their uh, photocopies on the wall, on the armory. Uh, uh, a whole block of people taping you know, one thing so close to another that was overlapping with scotch tape. 
all a person would have had to have done would be to go there and sit there and draw that. Mm-hmm. And it would have been, at least it seems to me, a more profound record of that time than the familiar video clips that we see, you know, the people running down the street, the mm-hmm. boiling stuff coming out of the building. It would have spoken to the experience more profoundly. And I asked illustrators in New York that I knew, did you do that? Did you go down there? Did you draw that? And as you just said, uh, the, even the people who really tried to deal with it, and some of it dealt, some of it, some of, some of them dealt with it very well, but most of them just kind of did a kind of oh, where were you when 9/11 occurred? Kind of thing. They didn't do the documentary footwork and get themselves down there and see what was going on and put it down on paper or whatever. And um, I use that as a kind of a uh, uh, an example of the, the the motivation that really makes illustration important. Um, if that had been done, we'd have a better record of that time. So, uh, like uh, speaking of, of Robert Weber, uh, Weber, sorry, Weaver, uh, Weaver. Um, uh, like these are the t- what, what other things did you take from his teaching? It sounds like like uh, did, did did you apply anything that you learned from his teaching to when you teach? Absolutely, I don't do it very well compared to him, but I do my best because I have almost messianic uh, belief that his message makes all the difference. And so I uh, I just did a, a workshop in Ecuador, which was called "Seeing Is Not Believing." is a Robert Weaver quote. And uh, I try hard, even when it's in a different language, to communicate the uniqueness of his, uh, his contribution. Um, I'm not the only one. Everybody who had him feels it. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons that teaching is okay and not just an escape from uh, being a freelancer or whatever. Actually, I was going to ask about the. Um, uh, the speaking of teaching, I, I really like the uh, the watch annual uh, that you that you put out that had uh, the the sample of the handouts that you would give to your students. I, th- I found that just absolutely fascinating. Um, just like your your ideas on how to improve your illustration and how to think about illustration, I thought that was fascinating. Well, thank you. Um, I've had a lot of good responses to that, um, and I just made a note to my. I'm going off to do the uh, Illustration Academy thing in Florida this weekend, and I just made a note to myself: take along the tech review, which is what I call that stuff. Yeah, I, I did. I, I'd love to see like an entire phone book full of <laughs> stuff like that. I found a textbook it just fascinating. Yeah, like a textbook. I thought it was just fascinating. I've been asked a few times to expand it, and, you know, really, one of my friends just pleads with me to expand it. Yeah, I'll plead, too. (laughs) I just, I, you know, um, I haven't gotten to it. I've uh, I've kind of resisted. I'm so super glad to get some of my journals printed. Uh, I've been waiting since Murat Saad won for another chance, and thanks to Carl Weikert, I'm uh, 
I'm getting that chance. Um, but I, I was sort of reluctant to do a how-to book, you know? Yeah, yeah, I understand. Or a retrospective of my uh, illustration career book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted instead for something more alive to be presented. And I thought, well, look, I'm doing all these books, and I think they're worth looking at. And certainly when I show them in my gallery shows, people study them for hours and hours. Oh, yeah. And uh, so why not, why not print that? But um, until Carl, no one would take me up on that. Oh, really? Yeah. The uh, uh, realities of uh, the economic realities of publishing. Yeah. I, I, I was actually uh, really um, uh, pleasantly surprised when I opened up the new Swallow book. I bought that, and then I opened it up and went, oh, there's Baron's Story stuff. Because <laughs> I, I, noticed, I noticed you had like uh, some stuff from uh, one of your journals from Nigeria that I thought was just just stunning. Oh, thanks, thanks. Um, yeah, it's a compendium of uh, various. Uh, it's a sampler of, from various journals, yeah. and uh, I have to be grateful um, for being asked to put that in there. Um, it was yeah. It's it's happening. It is happening, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting some of this stuff out. <laughs> um, one, one story I have a bunch of questions about is uh, for Neil Gaiman, you did the uh, Despair story in the um, Endless, what's it, Endless Nights yes. collection. And I was wondering the, the process for putting that together because it's, um, I think Dave McKeon kind of uh, designed it, but did you basically have like a, have the dialogue and then just do the art reflecting what Neil had written? Uh, yeah, what was your process working with Neil, I guess? is the... Well, uh, that's a story, another story. Um, um, I met Neil years ago, and he wrote actually a, an embarrassingly flattering description for the back of my uh, um, uh, book, uh, Marat Saad. And um, so we had a, a bit of a relationship, and... Uh, I uh, got into his Sandman universe um, out of my admiration for Dave McKean's covers and started checking it out, really liked it. And um, um, then um, uh, an editor at DC uh, asked me to participate in a uh, Sandman uh, deck of cards. And... um, Arbitrarily, I think, I don't remember clearly, I was given a directive on what character to do, and it was despair. And I checked out that character, and I just instantly loved the character. Mm-hmm. Um, to, be, to be fair, I, uh, I had a different take on despair than uh, many, many artists, and maybe even Neil himself. Right. Actually, I, actually, I'm going to interrupt you right now because I just—I was thinking the same thing. I, I read this interview with Mike Dringenberg, who drew the first few Sandman issues, and he said that um, that he said that the only character that he thought that Neil Gaiman never got his head around was the Despair character, and he said solely from the fact that Neil Gaiman is not the type of person that despairs about anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that might have been fairly true. Yeah. Well. Um, uh, for the record, my take on despair is that she is a total empath without a life. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, she's a character that uh, 
uh, can't feel anything until she's close to somebody who's feeling something very profoundly. Uh-huh. And uh, this has a even masochistic level in it. And I relate to that. I was uh, a, um, you know, I lived, my youth was spent in, in a very troubled family. And there was a lot of bad stuff happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was mellow. I was okay. I didn't really react to a lot of it. Uh, but the, the feeling of drama was always around me. And after a while, I began to realize that, oh, my God, I, I'm channeling this. I mean, this isn't me, but I am all upset because I'm near somebody who's feeling that. Mm-hmm. And so that was my take on, on despair. She was uh, um, pathological empath. Yeah, and, that, um, that actually reminds me, Alan Moore did a story about a, an angel that was a, uh, it's like a beautiful woman who's an angel that's, that's basically a heroin addict because she can't deal with loving everybody. It hurts her too much. It reminded me of that. Yeah, I think that's, that kind of psychological backstory is really, really close to where I'm at. Uh, and uh, so I liked the character. I liked her a lot. And uh, I liked her so much that I did my own complete journal based on the character, which was called The Book of Despairs. And um, uh, during one of Neil's speaking engagements over in Oakland, I hung out to show him that book with kind of the idea of maybe you'd be interested in this. And he'd been up all night or something like that. I don't know. He came in late, didn't have much time. And, you know, he's so popular. He's just a huge fan crush wherever he goes. And so he looked at the book, and, you know, my impression was, yeah, well, he didn't go for that at all. (laughs) (laughs) It was just too bloody far out for him. Um and uh, that impression lasted for years. It was, hang on to your hat, it was seven years later that someone told me that Neil had said on his website that he was going to do the Book of Despairs with Baron Story. <laughs> oh, first, really? First, I had heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. Um, but it was exciting. And, uh, you know, I loved I love talking with him about it. Uh, but as I said, he was very busy. He was doing, I think, he was doing a book signing tour for Coraline at that time. And it was hard for me to even get in touch. Um, Neil isolates himself when he writes in something that his people refer to as his cabin. Actually, I believe a uh, former motel somewhere in the woods in Minnesota. I'm not sure. Um, I did decide that I want a cabin, too. (laughs) (laughs) But the the bottom line on it is that I got no script. And the deadline started getting close. And so I just went ahead and did uh, something along the lines of my original book of despairs, a series 
of portraits. He had named the thing 15 Portraits of Despair. And that's all I had was a name. But I thought, okay, I can do 15 portraits. What I didn't realize is he didn't mean 15 portraits of despair, a character. Oh. <laughs> he meant 15 portraits of the condition of despair. Oh. But I had no way of getting in touch. He was in his cabin. And there's no phone, no computer, no nothing. Not a single luxury. <laughs> anyway... I went ahead and did the 15 Portraits of Despair and sent them to D.C. on deadline without a text of any kind. And they loved him. But, of course, it was Neil's book, and, you know, what could he do? So he, I sent them to him. He liked them. He just said, we, we cut a deal where we would use half of them and I would create another half in response to some new writings of his. And he decided to um, do them not in sequential, but in a kind of a haiku poem on the page form. And uh, that really worked for the drawings. Mm-hmm. It was it's fabulous for the drawings. And it also works, by the way, in readings. I, I, when he came to San Jose to do a reading, he read all the stories in my despair section. <laughs> uh, um, but anyway, um, so I modified some, and I created others to his text, and I had this huge pile of stuff, and I didn't know how to edit it, and I sent it all to the editors and said, you know, here's what I've got, here's the way I think it works with the text, I'm not sure, and that was a big problem, uh, and Dave stepped in and solved that, hmm. out of the pure generosity of his spirit he he liked what I had done he liked what Neil had created he sat down and fixed it and uh, you know eternal gratitude yeah I, I actually uh, I met I, I, I didn't realize is has ape already happened yeah oh, okay yeah I didn't realize you were gonna be at ape this year I might have came down again this year because <laughs> I, I met Alan uh, Alan Spiegel uh, last year when I was there, and, and I picked up the Dave McKean Pictures That Tick book, and I thought it was just beautiful. I, uh, I'm a big fan of his. Oh, Dave is the one that really made me take things seriously as far as comics are concerned. I had, uh, you know, I played around with it. I liked the fact that my my students were, were now famous as comics artists. That was cool, yeah. you know. Uh, but it was Dave that more or less made the point to me that it, you had to go there. It wasn't just something that you could, you know, be a fan about. He His position was, you know, look, if you want to understand what's happening in the graphic arts, you have to go and check out what's happening in comics. And I took him at his word because he was so good. <laughs> He's just incredible, you know? I bought into Photoshop because of Dave McKean. I bought into comics because of Dave McKean. You know. Yeah, I, yeah. I bought. I bought into Photoshop after him too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I was resistant to comics and Photoshop, but look at what Dave does with it. Yeah. So, um, so I uh, considered it important that I try to hip up on it, and uh, 
the graphic novel is a great form. You know, when I saw uh, things like uh, Bilson Cabbage's uh, Straight Toasters, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. or something like that, or even, you know, um, even with the superhero narratives, you know, they, they, just the sheer awesomeness of the artwork really, really did it for me. Um, my student, uh, George Pratt, shortly after I had him in class, was doing what I still consider an amazing graphic novel, Enemy Ace. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, it's fabulous. Uh, it's his best work. Uh, actually, uh, my favorite thing he did was the, the No Man's Land, uh, the, the book of pictures from World War I yeah. sketch. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was just stunning. Unbelievable. And it's right on point since right now I'm working on a World War I project and George owns that. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, Enemy Ace was all painted, yeah. every damn page, and it was just fabulous. Um, Does that sometimes seem daunting when people do um, big painted projects like that? Because it's a lot of work that goes into one of those books. I mean, I know uh, Al Columbia didn't walk out of big numbers, um, you know, on the best of terms because it was just so um, hard on the artist. Hey, I know. Uh, my buddy Kent did uh, Darren Aronofsky's Fountain as a graphic novel. Oh, yeah. He worked on it for a year and a half, and he loved it, but it was, like, so arduous. On, 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 on. So much work to do. You know, it's it's bad, but... Um, and it doesn't pay. Let's yeah. put that in. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I remember when I got very annoyed at doing comics and having no response to them, I went back to New York and I started hanging out with my old buddies, uh, with Seth and Peter, and I was complaining, you know, God, you know, I'm an illustrator. I expect to be paid for what I do. Yeah. yeah. And, and they said, you know, don't you realize that's not the point? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Robert Williams said the best thing about comics was that... Uh, he said, no one gives a shit about them, so you can do whatever you want. That was the strength. That's kind of, that's kind of where it's at. Yeah. It's not only that you can, can do whatever you want. The form is about doing things with that uncensored kind of definition of the endeavor. Oh, yeah. Actually, I had a kind of a, a friend asked me a funny question. And uh, it, it's kind of a simple question, but he said, uh, Oh, you're interviewing Baron's story. Ask him where he got the triangles from. Because <laughs> there's triangles pre- pre- prevalent in, in a lot of your work. And I was wondering uh, where, the, where you got that from and, uh, and maybe like what problem that you use them to solve in your work. Uh, they, come, they come from Africa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I went to Africa in 1981 for the National Geographic to paint the rainforest. And uh, I didn't see any art there, to my disappointment. Um, I had read up books on African art and various things, and I'd always liked it. But um, I didn't realize the cultural situation, at least in West Africa, was that, you know, um, uh, there was an antagonism towards creating uh, works of art because they became objects of value. And uh, so people painted on their bodies, or they painted things that were destroyed in the process. And uh, there weren't a lot of people who were thinking archival. <laughs> mm. um, anyway, um, 
that came back with me, and it didn't hit me until um, a little time later. Uh, I uh, moved to San Francisco um, when I met uh, my beloved wife, Petra, and um, and I severed a lot of contacts with my New York illustration clients, and my career began to go way wobbly. And I, um, I also had been uh, connected to some very exciting artists in New York, and I was thrilled about what they were doing. This was a period in the early 80s when uh, sort of guerrilla art shows were being uh, staged in abandoned school buildings, and uh, I loved the way fabulous... Um, uh, Famous artists like Leon Golub would come out and show their works with uh, students and other things in these abandoned buildings. It was so cool. And uh, so I saw a show here in San Francisco called New York Art Now at the Forum Gallery. Nah, I might have the gallery wrong. Anyway, I went over just, you know, full of my why did I ever leave Mecca vibe. Went in and saw the show, and it sucked. (laughs) It was terrible. You know, people told me later, well, you know, New York's changed since you left, Baron. And, you know, not that it was my doing. (laughs) 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 But all of that righteous stuff that I remembered was was gone, and instead there was a lot of, eh, let's call it poser art. You know, uh, unskilled, uncommitted um, you know, you know, dilettante on steroid. Yeah. Do you want to say any names of people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot. Of, I know what you're talking about. It's like a, it's like the high school kid with an ego or something. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I was totally disillusioned, and that was upstairs at the gallery. I came down the stairway completely shaken, and at the bottom of the stairway. It just happened to be a display case in which there was an African mask covered with triangles. And I had found my African art, and I stood there, you know how it is in life. Sometimes when you're utterly destroyed, you're really receptive to new experience. (laughs) That's my experience. (laughs) Yeah. And this mask started talking to me. And uh, it's like, I I was taught that decorative was a downer, you know, that, that doing things decoratively was, was not, not aesthetically valid. And was this not decoration all over this mask, these triangles? And I went home, and I, and I started fooling around with it, and I started trying it out. And I liked it. The way the triangles was, were made appealed to me. They weren't planned out and then filled in. They were made one at a time, and each one had to be fairly perfect to fit into the nest of the whole group. And there was an almost prayer-like trance that I would get into while I was creating these triangles that was really a nice um, balm for the bad feelings that I had had about my disappointment about art. And so I kept doing it. And I, I talked to um, 
uh, Gary Panter at one time, who told me that he also went through a triangle phase and did a whole journal of triangles. So I think some others are discovering this. But uh, anyway, after a while, I began to see it. I mean, I began to identify with it and think about associations. I like I like the number three. I like triangles a lot because they had they were derived from threes. Uh, of course, the triangle is uh, at the heart of uh, Euclidean logic. The fact that you can always create a triangle by a certain theorem. Um, the triangle also meant a lot of other things to me. Uh, you know, it's structurally powerful and holds up bridges and all that good stuff. And so I thought, God, you know, triangles are really cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, th- I think we're almost out of time. We yeah. are, Baron. This has been awesome. I'm really happy we got the chance to talk to you. And oh, Don has one last thing to say. Yeah, I just, wa- I just wanted to say that I'm hoping to see uh, as many of your books, your journals, into print as possible. Because it, uh, it, it, like Oscar Wilde, uh, when he was talking about diaries and, and the importance of being earnest, he said, he said a diary is a, a record of one's own thoughts and impressions, and consequently meant for publication. And I thought that that was kind of applicable here. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Okay, well, it's been a pleasure to be on the phone with you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank and you. I, uh, Thanks for look, joining us. Look forward to uh, more work coming out. Thanks. Thank you, Baron. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. For all you listening, that was Baron Story, um, author of the new book, author artist of uh, Life After Black, uh, Baron Story, the journals, number 45. Um, that shows you how extensive his journals are. Um, is it 45? Yeah, it's 45. Um, Tales from the Edge book is still available. The Tales from the Edge, uh, it's a black and white kind of collection of a bunch of different stuff. Um, I say the this book, the Baron Story, um, Life After Black, and the Sandman, uh, are the easiest to get um, representations of his work. Um, well, the, the Baron Story book isn't out yet, but it will be out very soon. You can order it online. You can order it from, uh, it, it was in the, it's in the new previews magazine. It's in the new previews. So there you go, kids. For those of you who uh, order through previews, uh, get your comic store to carry it. It's beautiful. I think you're going to see why this guy has had such an impact on all the uh, great artists out there. And actually, I had tons more questions for him, too. But, I mean, yeah, me we're too. already past our time, and the <laughs> next guys are here. Yeah. So that was fabulous. Thank you so much, Baron. Um, for yo, you all people in Vancouver, did I say yo? Yeah, you said yo. What? what? Um, this Saturday is the Comic Jam at the Jolly Alderman. I will be there, and I hope you are, too. As well, um, Saturday starting at eight at eight eight p.m. Joel Alderman, bring uh, bring your pens, bring your erasers, or maybe a hard hang. surface to draw on, or be like me, I can't draw, but I like to hang out with people that draw. Yeah, the cool kids, the cool kids. <laughs> well, I'm gonna yeah. refrain from yeah. saying that again. <laughs> and next week's guest will be Eddie Campbell. Uh, interview Colin and I did a couple of weeks ago. Don was too ill to come. I was I was feeling down. So uh, can everyone just uh, maybe email in and tell Don how much he sucks for not being there? <laughs> we love you, Don, as always. We love you, Robin. The week after that will be Luke Ramsey. Um, and Jim, and I forgot the guy's last name. Oh, but Luke Ramsey, part of the island, or does the island fold, islands fold, uh, neat artist. Uh, he'll have people in that will stay on his, island, on his property on an island, and they will do art 
It's uh, very interesting. He's quite an interesting guy, and I'm looking forward to talking to him. He did a great book with Justin B. Williams, which you can pick up at Lucky's. And uh, I don't know if RX has it, but I know uh, Sophia's has it. So there you go. Up next is Crimes and Treasons. And look forward to more great stuff, www.inkstuds.com.